You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Hey, good morning, everyone. Yeah, I just wanted to take a second and uh, elaborate a little bit uh, more about this trip because it's something new and something we've not really done before. And, and, um, and part of the reason for it is this. I don't know how many of you know this or realize, but we are really in a unique moment uh, in our world right now because um, we are seeing one of the largest migrations of people in the history of the world. Um, by, by most estimates, over a million people have gone uh, refugees have gone through these islands off of Turkey that are these Greek islands, one of which is where we'll be going to help serve in this refugee camp. And, and these people are not just anybody. I mean, these are people from places like Iraq and Iran and Syria and northern Africa, and many of them um, are, are Muslim, and, and, and they're coming from some of the most unreached people groups in all of the world. Places that you and I could most likely not hop on an airplane and fly to and do a missions trip, and yet they're coming uh, to us. They're coming through Europe, and we have a real opportunity as the church in the world uh, to, to go to them and to meet some of their needs because they are in crisis. They've come from war-torn countries and, and other, uh, uh, other countries where things are just in turmoil. And so, again, we have a real opportunity to show them the love and the compassion of Jesus Uh, by doing some of these humanitarian efforts, and there will no doubt be opportunities while we're there to share the love and the gospel of Jesus as well. And so uh, I just want to encourage you, as Alex said, if you're even slightly interested in this and and in going on this trip, to make sure uh, that you get to that interest meeting here in a couple weeks. All right, let's uh, turn our attention now to the book of Galatians. Um, If you're new with us this morning, my name's Nick Carruthers. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Galatians, and uh, we're going to continue on in that today. And so uh, I invite you to to grab a Bible if you brought one. Uh, You can open up to Galatians chapter 4. If you need to borrow one, you can use our Pew Bible, and that's found on page 974. And uh, this passage that we're going to look at, we're only going to look at seven verses, but I think they're some of the most powerful verses and, and some of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. And so I'm excited to get to look at them with you here this morning. And so uh, won't you go ahead and stand as we read Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different, than, no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these precious words that are found in your scriptures. Lord, I just pray now that you would uh, send the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds, to help us to understand your word. 
We just pray and, and ask that you would guide us here, Lord. We ask that, that we would be different than when we came in. That, God, as a result of dwelling on and, and meditating on your word, our hearts would be changed. We would look more and more like your son, Jesus. And so we ask for that now. In his name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Um, I've only been to Washington, D.C. twice, but it's by far one of my favorite cities uh, in the United States. And, and the reason for that is because uh, I'm one of those people that, that love history. I'm a little bit of a history nerd, and, and there's no doubt that that city is full of history. So for me, when I'm there, to, to be able to walk down those streets and to think, you know, I, I can't believe that Abraham Lincoln walked down these streets. I, I, I can't believe that, that Teddy Roosevelt at some point was walking down these streets, or, or John F. Kennedy Jr., or, or even Chester A. Arthur. I mean, can you believe Chester A. Arthur walked down these streets? I mean, or Herbert Hoover, Calvin Cole. It's amazing. Uh, just I thought I'd throw in an obscure one, but no, it is amazing. The thing about D.C., though, that's obvious as you're there is that there are people and there are places that you don't have access to. And if you try to gain access, if you try to go into these places or to try to meet with these people, there are consequences. For example, look what happened to this guy uh, who was wearing some Pokemon gear as he jumped over the White House fence. Now, uh, I'm not exactly sure what it was he won. Apparently, he didn't have any weapons on him except for a Pikachu stuffed animal. And uh, Again, I don't really know what he wants. Perhaps he just wanted to talk to the president about Pokemon Go and to find out what his score was. Um, we don't know, but, but what we do know is that it wasn't going to happen. The Secret Service made sure that this, that this man was not able to go see the president. And, you know, as I thought about it, it's actually amazing all that it takes in order for you to be able to, to go meet the president and to spend time with him. In most, in most cases, in order for you to do that, you have to have some sort of power base like a world leader or a politician, or perhaps you have to be higher up in government like a military general or the FBI director, or at the very least, you have to win a sports championship like the Super Bowl or the World Series. And, and, and in light of all of that, it's, for you and I, it's most likely not going to happen. We most likely will not have the privilege or the access to someone like the president. Now, I know for some of you in here, you're okay with that given our current president, but we won't go there. You see, throughout history, though, there have been, uh, there have been some other people, though, who have always had access to the president. In fact, these people can pretty much do whatever they want. For example, here's a picture of one of them. Uh, that's JFK Jr. hiding out in his dad's desk. And uh, as I was looking at this picture, many think that this picture was taken uh, right around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And if you were alive then, or if you like history like me, you'll know that, that this was the time when we were literally going head-to-head -head with Russia. We were so close to having a nuclear war, and yet here's just JFK Jr. just hanging out in his dad's desk. You see, if your dad's the president, there's a lot that you can get away with. For example, you can even have a dance party in your dad's Oval Office. There's uh, JFK Jr. with his sister dancing away. And, and, and so again, the, the point is, is that you have these rights and these privileges. As a kid of someone in power, you have privileges and you have rights that others don't. Now what we saw, um, or what we're going to look at this morning, uh, is this idea. And Chris introduced it a little bit last week, and that is this. 
If, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you are a part of God's family. In fact, you are called his children. And yet, uh, for many of us, I believe that we struggle to understand and to believe all of what that means. I think for many of us, we're still tempted to live as if that's not true. You see, so far in this letter of Galatians, up until this point, Paul has been laying out a very detailed and an intricate argument to the Galatians about their justification. Or in other words, what that that word justification means is is the way that you are made right with God. And the the language and the imagery of justification is one of a courtroom. It's it's judge and jury. It's it's, it's, uh, guilty or not guilty. Yet what we saw at the end of last week is that Paul begins to make a shift. Paul begins to use this new image, this new language, this uh, uh, family. It's one of being sons of God, as it says there in chapter 3, verse 26. Now look, justification, this idea of being declared not guilty by the judge, is one of the most amazing aspects of the gospel. But I believe this idea of being adopted into God's family is even more so. In fact, I would argue that the doctrine of adoption, this idea that we have been brought into the family of God, is the climax of the gospel. And I don't think I'm the only one who would, who would say that. Uh, for example, J.I. Packer, uh, that great theologian from the previous century, he, in his classic book, Knowing God, puts it this way. He says, some textbooks on Christian doctrine treat adoption as a mere subsection of justification, but this is inadequate. The two ideas are distinct, and adoption is more exalted. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. In justification, God declares of penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve. Because Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. This free gift of acquittal and peace won for us at the cost of Calvary is wonderful enough and all conscious, but justification does not itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. An idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. Are you guys tracking with that? I know it's a lot of theological language, but he's just saying justification and adoption are two different ideas, and, and justification, again, is forensic. It's, it's law, and, and you could be justified without it implying that you have any close relationship with the judge. But then he continues. He says, but contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is, fa- is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. And then catch this. He says, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And so this is what we're going to look at this morning. And, and so let's dive into the text and let's see what it is that Paul has to say about this idea of adoption. And to guide our time, the, the simple outline to walk us through these seven verses is simply this. Paul, number one, gives us an analogy in verses one and two. 
Then he gives us the application of the analogy in verses 3 through 6. And then he finishes in verse 7 with a conclusion. And so, starting with number 1, the analogy, look again there at verse 1. It says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so what these first two verses are doing, Paul is giving the Galatians an analogy to illustrate his previous argument. Um, other English translations make this a little more obvious. For example, the, the uh, NIV says, there he says, what I am saying is, or the, uh, the New Living says, think of it this way. And so Paul is, again, he's, he's bringing them into this analogy to try to explain and to help the Galatians understand what it is he has been arguing for. And if you've uh, been with us for a while, you'll remember that the big idea of the book and what it is that Paul is addressing is this issue where, where basically this group of Jewish Christians had infiltrated uh, the, the Galatian churches. They've been referred to as the Judaizers. And they had come in and they had begun to confuse uh, these young believers, these Gentile believers, and they had, been, they had started to cause them to, devout, uh, to de- doubt the sufficiency of their salvation. They'd begin to get them to doubt their, their identity as the people of God. If you remember, they, they were essentially saying that in order for a Gentile Christian to be full members of the faith, they needed to obey and to adhere to the Mosaic law, and specifically, they needed to obey the command to be circumcised. And so throughout this whole letter, we have seen Paul over and over again refute this idea. And, and last week in chapter 3, we saw Paul talk about the law. The law was so uh, critical to their argument, and so Paul spends this whole section in chapter 3 where he talks about what the law is, what it was for, and, and why God gave it in the first place. And from that, he began to show that it's, it's, it's it, faith in Jesus that not only justifies us, but it's also what causes us to become sons of God. Or in other words, it's, it's, what, uh, it's the way that we are uh, brought into the family of God. You see, Paul, once again, is showing that these Judaizers were wrong, that they misunderstood the purpose of the law, and they also misunderstood how a person is brought into the family of God. And so here, in verses 1 and 2, he's trying to illustrate that point with this little analogy. And he basically just says that, it, that a child who is destined to inherit his father's estate, that, that while he is a child, he's no different than a slave. And the reason for that is because he can't inherit the estate until he reaches adulthood. And so because that's true, while the the heir is a child, they need these guardians and these managers to oversee them. And so that's Paul's arguing. That's one of the functions of the law was to be this manager, this overseer. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit like what I was talking with my brother-in-law about earlier this week. Uh, My brother-in-law and I went hiking on Monday and we were out uh, at this park called Clear Creek, just south of Lancaster, on this nice long hike. And, and while we were out there, he began to uh, ask me if, I would, um, if Faith and I would reconsider um, us, uh, them putting us on their will to, to have their kids if they ever passed away. And uh, we had talked about this years before, um, but that, things look a lot differently now just a few years later. Because when they originally put us on the will, they only had one kid and we only had two. 
And here, just a few shorts later, years later, we have four, and they have two with one on the way. And so, you know, that changes things because that moves you into the weird minivan where it's like the, the 12 to 15 passenger. And so he just wanted to check and to make sure that we were still good. And uh, through that process, we, we talked about, uh, you know, my brother-in-law, he's one of those like really responsible people. So he's got, uh, you know, loads and loads of life insurance. And, and so we were talking about that. And, and about how things would work if, if, God forbid, him and my sister-in-law passed away. And, and basically, what would happen is that their uh, estate, their inheritance from the life insurance would be split between their three kids. And, and Faith and I would act as their guardians and, and would uh, help raise them until that point they were able to then inherit the money. And so this is a little bit like what Paul is saying here. It's just a very simple, applica- or a very simple analogy that he's using. And so let's move on now and look at, at point two here. How does he apply it? The application. Look again at verse three. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so Paul moves on from the analogy, and he begins to to try to apply it to this current situation, this, this argument that he has been making. And that's why he transitions there. He says, in the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, it's not quite, uh, there's a little bit of debate as to around what exactly Paul meant by that phrase, elementary principles. And the reason for that is because that Greek phrase, that those Greek words can be translated a couple different ways. And so if you have an ESV Bible with you, you'll notice that there's a footnote which says that it can be translated as elemental spirits. Or in other words, that, that's referring to demonic spirits. And so again, it's hard to know exactly what it is that Paul has in mind here, but, but what is clear is that he's making this connection that before Christ, during the days of the Old Testament law, that we were enslaved, we were held in bondage. But then he says, but in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. And so like most analogies and most illustrations, they begin to break down at some point. And, and Paul, I think, as I looked at it this week, I was like, he's, he's a little confusing things here, but, but his breaks down because on the one hand, he's referring to us as children, but then on the other hand, he's referring to us as slaves who are in need of adoption. And so we can't press the analogy too hard, but the point is simply this. That before Christ, both Jews and Gentiles alike were enslaved to the law and were enslaved to sin. And yet, at just the right time, and the fullness of time, things changed. God sent forth His Son. And and this Son was born of a woman, born under the law. Now the thing is, is that each of those descriptions there of Jesus are really important. You see, Paul, in saying that, that Jesus is God's son, that he was sent forth from God, Paul is emphasizing Jesus' divinity. However, though, on the other hand, when he says that he was born by a woman or born of a woman, he's emphasizing there Jesus' humanity. 
And then when he says that he was born under the law, he's emphasizing the fact that Jesus was born ethnically as a Jew. He was born into the Jewish people. And so all of that taken together, it proves and it shows us that Jesus was uniquely qualified to accomplish our redemption and our adoption. You see, because Jesus had the right substance, he was 100% God and 100% man. And because he had the right heritage, he was Jewish by birth. And, and because he lived under the law and obeyed it perfectly, he had the right character. And so all of that taken together means that he and he alone could free us. You see, that word redeem there in verse 5, it, it means to obtain or to set uh, free by paying a price. And Jesus, through his perfect life, you see, he always obeyed the law through his, his sacrificial death. He went to the cross for us. He died in our place for our sins. And all of that was to uh, pay the price for our freedom. And according to verse 5, that redemption, that paying the price, the reason he redeemed us was in order to free us from the law and to allow us to receive adoption as sons. Now, perhaps some of you ladies uh, in here, you're annoyed at the use of the word son and sons all throughout these verses. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, Paul, why couldn't you have just said uh, sons and daughters? Or, or why couldn't you have been a little more generic and said the children of God? Well, there are some English translations that, that go that route, like the NIV and the NLT. They say children of God. And, and usually, there, there, there's, again, translations do that, and, and sometimes it's okay because the context allows for it. It's, it's obvious that it's referring to men and women. But here, in this passage, it's actually critical that you understand that the word son or sons is very important. And it's actually very intentional on Paul's part, and therefore, it should be retained as the proper word. And the reason for that is because during this time in the Roman world, uh, during when Paul was writing, uh, daughters or women could not inherit their uh, father's estate. They could not inherit property. And so in saying son or sons, this has less to do with gender and more to do with your status as an heir. You see, if, a, if you were a woman, if you were someone's daughter, it didn't matter if you were the firstborn or the onlyborn, you could not inherit anything. And yet, because of what Paul said last week in, in chapter 3, verse 28, when he said, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ, that, that actually by using the word son now and including women in that, he is being radical and countercultural here. And so, of course, women are included in this definition of, of sons or sonship, but when English translations change the word, they actually cause us to lose some of the meaning of the text. They actually lose some of the radicalness of what Paul is trying to say here. And so I just wanted to, to mention that so that if you are maybe feeling tempted to be frustrated by all of this male language, don't be. Because this section is actually quite radical and countercultural to Paul's day. And so Paul, through Jesus, he says that we have all been adopted as sons. But not only that, he continues on in verse 6 and says this. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we, uh, we see here that in verse 6 that God not only sent his son to purchase our adoption, 
but he also sent his spirit so that we uh, would, would have the experience of adoption. He sent the spirit into our hearts in order to affirm our adoption. You see, the evidence that you are truly a child of God is that you have received the Holy Spirit who enables you to respond to God as Father. And, and as a result, that affirms your identity as a child of God. And I think what Paul's getting at here is that, that by all accounts, this is not just an intellectual or a cognitive reality. But this is actually something that you experience through the Holy Spirit. You see, through Jesus, we become God's sons legally, but it's through the Spirit that we become God's sons experientially. In other words, what, what I'm trying to say here is that when you receive Jesus, you put your faith in him, you become a son. You become a daughter, and that is true about you, whether or not you feel that way or not. That reality is true. However, it's through the work of the Spirit in your heart that you can and should come to a place where you experientially feel and know that, yes, I am a son. I am a daughter of God. Uh, John Stott uh, put it this way in his commentary. He said, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but he also, he also to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship, but he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. That's why Paul, and he's making a very similar argument in Romans chapter 8. That's why he says this. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, I know some of us in here, we've been taught to distrust spiritual experiences. But according to the scriptures, that's unbiblical. God desperately wants you to know intellectually that you are a son of God, but he also wants you desperately to know and to experience your sonship as well. He wants you to know and to believe and to experience him as father. Now, the one thing I will say about spiritual experiences or those more mystical moments in our life is that if they ever lead us to violate what the scriptures say or they, they try to get us to believe something different than the scriptures, then yes, we should distrust them. But I don't think that's, that even with that said, that's not an excuse or a warning to distrust all spiritual experiences or even a warning to not desire them. Because I believe the Lord wants you to experience and to know that you have been adopted, and that's more than just intellectual. I, uh, this week, as I was studying for this, I stumbled across this section from a book called Adopted for Life by Russell Moore. And, and in it, this, this section, I think, really illustrates just how powerful our adoption really is and, and what it is that it looks like for the Spirit to cry out through our hearts, Abba, Father. And so I just wanted to read you a section from this. He says this, the creepiest sound I ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Marie and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of our two trips which were required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, though at times we stifled the urge to vomit and to weep. The whore was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and I pulled on Maria's elbow. I said, why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. 
And both of us compared it to the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church's nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth and the crib, silent, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergi, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like. But neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words that they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way that we had entered in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye. As by law, we had to return to the United States and to wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before we could return and pick them up. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into a quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when I heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and he let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew maybe for the first time that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and a mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck maybe for the first time by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament, ones that I had memorized in vacation Bible school, and I was surprised by how little of them I had gotten until now. Little Maxim's scream changed everything, more, I think, than did the judge's verdict and the notarized paperwork. It was the moment in his recognizing that he would be heard, he went from being an orphan to being a son. It was the moment that I went from, uh, that I became a father in fact, if not in law. And I just, man, as I read that this week, I was just so struck by the imagery and just the powerfulness of this fact that, that as the Spirit comes into our hearts, he, he, He's the one who gives us the hope and allows us to, to cry out that there's someone out there who hears us, that there's someone out there who is our Father. And so this is what the Spirit does. He enables us to cry out because you and I, we have a Father who loves us. We're no longer orphans. And so let's move on now and look at this last verse here, verse 7, which brings us to our last point here, the conclusion. It says this, so, so he's, again, he's wrapping up what he's said so far. He's saying, so, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so Paul closes this section here by summarizing the big idea and the point that he has been trying to make. And he says, look, guys, you are no longer a slave. Because of Jesus, you have been set free from the law. You've been set free from sin. But not only that, you have actually been adopted into the family of God as a son. You are a rightful heir now. 
You see, you are in the previous section in chapter 3, there's all this talk about the promises of Abraham. Who, who are the heirs to these promises? And these Judaizers were arguing that it's only those who, who are actually a part of the, the family of God, those who, who adhere to the Mosaic law. And yet Paul is saying, no, it's through faith that we receive these promises. And so Paul, once again, as he's been doing throughout this entire letter, he is showing and proving that the Judaizers were wrong. That the way into the people of God, the way into the family of God, uh, the way that we inherit the promises of Abraham, that all of that is not through the law, it's not through becoming Jewish, but rather it's through faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith in Jesus, not only does it lead to us being justified and redeemed from the law, but it actually leads to us being adopted as sons. And the proof or the evidence of our adoption is that he has given us now the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And that Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he affirms our sonship. He's the one who enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. And so let's transition now and let's begin thinking about what the implications of all of this are for us today. And as I thought about this passage and what it is that it talks about, the, the primary application that stood out to me is this, that, that you and I, that, that, that as believers, we need to not only know, but we need to live out and experience the privileges of our adoption as sons of God. You see, the reason for that is because your primary identity as a follower of Jesus is a child of God. It's a, it's a son of God, and yet Satan will always attack this identity in your lives. He'll always try to get you to doubt it. You see, I said earlier that I believe the climax of the gospel is this idea of us being adopted into the family of God. And because it's the best part of the gospel, it's the climax, I think it's also consistently the area that Satan attacks the most. In fact, we even see him do this with Jesus while Jesus was here on earth. If you, if you remember, while Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, Satan comes to him and, and he says this. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be bread. He says, he looks at him, he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. What do you mean if? Of course he is the son of God and yet Satan tried to get Jesus to question that. He tried to get Jesus to doubt his identity as the Son of God, but, but Jesus, for his part, he never wavered. He never doubted his identity. And one of the things that's so awesome, when you look at that section in the Gospels where we see the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, is that literally right before it, the chapter before it, both in Matthew 3 and in Luke 3, uh, we see Jesus get baptized. And during his baptism, one of the things that we're told is that, is that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. But not only that, the, a voice from heaven spoke. And you know what that voice said? You know what God the Father said? He said, this is my son, and with him I am well pleased. You see, I think Jesus could resist Satan's attack against his identity as the son of God because he knew without a doubt that he was the son and that his father was well pleased with him. See, when it comes to our life, Satan will attack our identity as well. He'll either try to get you to, to doubt that you are a son or a daughter of God, or if he can't do that, he'll at least try to make you think, he'll, he'll, he'll try to distort uh, your view of God as father. If he can't get you to doubt that you're a son or a daughter, he'll at least try to get you to think that, that the father is disappointed in you. 
I try to get you to think that the father is, you know, like, like he's just disappointed. He's like that, that angry old man that you can never please. Or if he can't do that, he'll at least try to get you to doubt or be ignorant of all of the privileges that you have as a child of God. And so he's going to be throwing these attacks on you. And the thing about them is this, that these attacks, these lies, they're extremely damaging if we give in to them. And yet in contrast to that, if we are confident of who we are in Jesus, if we're confident of the privileges and the authority that we have as a child of God, then there won't be much that Satan can do to harm us. In fact, he'll even be scared of you. And because that's true, that's why he works so hard to keep you from ever getting to that place. He wants you to think that you're still a slave. He wants you to think that, that, that you're still an orphan. That's why we wrestle so much with, with, with being a, a slave to fear, a slave to sin, a, a slave to the law, because if he can convince us of that, then he can hinder our effectiveness in the kingdom of God. You see, he knows that if you doubt who you are, you'll never take any risk. You'll never step out and, and be bold because you'll always be doubting whether or not the Father's pleased with you. You'll always be doubting whether or not you're in or if you're out. But if you know who you are, then of course you'll risk. Of course you'll step out. I mean, why not? Your father is the king. He owns everything. And not only that, but he loves you and he's, he's pleased with you. You see, because of Jesus, when, when God the Father said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, because of Jesus, if you're in him, that's true of you. The Father looks down at you and he says, you're my child and, and with you I am well pleased. And if we get that, that'll free us from the fear of man. That'll free us from the fear of failure. It'll even free us from the fear of death. Because he's overcome it all, and in his goodness and in his grace, he has, has poured all out over our lives, that goodness and that grace, and that changes everything. You see, this next statement may be a little risky, and you might be tempted to disagree with me, and that's okay, but, but I really do believe it. You see, I think that, that a mark of spiritual maturity is, is shown or is proven not simply or primarily by your obedience to God. I don't even think it's shown or proven primarily by Bible knowledge. But rather, I think a mark of spiritual maturity is shown and is proven when you and I start acting like the sons and daughters that we are. When we realize that, when we start to realize those things and begin to live them out. That what God says about us is true. That we actually are heirs to the promises of God. That, that, that yes, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. We are, in fact, his kids. And if we get that and we begin to experience and live that out, then I believe we'll be moving into a place of maturity. That place where, where we're no longer a slave to fear. A slave to performance. And we can, kind of, we can finally be free as the kids of God. You know, over the summer, I, uh, I had this one day where uh, my wife was having some of her cousins over, or I think that was the scenario. Maybe they're doing a game night, and so she gave me a, a, a pass for the night off, and so uh, I did something I've not really done before, and I went to a movie by myself, and uh, I went and watched the new documentary on Mr. Rogers, and it was awesome. If, if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it, um, but there was this one scene that really bothered me, 
And it was this scene where there was this uh, cable news network and these anchors were, were talking about uh, Mr. Rogers and they were bashing him. They were talking about the fact that, that, that they were blaming him for uh, this current generation's uh, sense of entitlement. They're like, I, you know, Mr. Rogers is the reason why this current generation thinks that they're so special because Mr. Rogers, you know, through his television show, told them that they were special, that they were unique. And, you know, frankly, I, I was really bothered by it because after watching the documentary and seeing how much this man loved children, how much he sacrificed for them, uh, again, I, I just think that their comments were completely unfair. And, um, in fact, at one point, I think they even referred to him as being evil. And, um, uh, you know, actually, hold on one second. Uh, hold on. In the spirit of Mr. Rogers, I want you to hear something today. And yes, this is actually mine. I didn't have to borrow it from anyone. I, I'm not ashamed. I don't wear it very often, but it is mine. But I want you to hear this. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are a child of God. And because that's true, you are special. You are unique. You are worthy of love. And you know what? It's okay to embrace that. It's okay to feel entitled. It's okay to live and act like you really know and believe that your father loves you and that he owns everything and that because of that, you are an heir. You're a co-heir with Christ. You know, earlier this week, I was uh, out grilling and um, sometimes when I go out to grill, I'll just take a book with me and, and just sit there while in between flipping meat or whatever and uh, at one point, my son Hudson came outside and he asked if I wanted to, to kick the soccer ball with him in the driveway. And, and so he came out and I said, oh, okay, sure, buddy. And as he was coming out, I, I can't really describe it, but I just had this sense. Um, it, I, I just knew he was going to ask me to do something like that because he always asked me to do something like that. The kid is like sports obsessed. And, and I just had this sense that I was supposed to say yes to whatever he was going to ask. And again, I can't really describe it. I, I actually think that perhaps the Holy Spirit was nudging me to say yes in this moment. And so again, he, he came out, and I said, okay, buddy. And I put my book down, and uh, we began to kick the ball in the driveway. Well, what I didn't know until later was that when Hudson was inside putting his shoes on, and, and he was telling his mom that he was going to go outside, um, she, my wife, who knows me very well, was like, well, buddy, I mean, it looks like he's enjoying reading his book and being alone out there. Are you sure you want to go out and ask him? And at that point, Hudson replied, he said, well, yeah, but, but who knows what might happen when you have a kind dad. And um, now look, I, I don't say that to put, I, I wish that was true about me. I wish that I was always kind and generous and that I, that I always did say yes to him. I certainly don't. But thankfully, the spirit, I believe, nudged me to say yes, and in obedience to him, I did. But the thing that uh, so struck me about that uh, that situation or that story that happened earlier in the week was, I just love what that story illustrates about Hudson's faith, about his childlike attitude. That kind of faith and attitude that says, you know what, that's my dad and I'm gonna go ask him because who knows what might happen when you have a kind dad. And my question for you this morning is this, do you believe that's true about your dad? 
Do you believe that's true about your heavenly Father? Do you have that kind of confidence, that kind of swag that says, you know what, I'm going to put these shoes on, and I'm going to go out, I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to ask him, because I'm a child of God. Do you have that kind of childlike faith that says, you know what, I know my Father, I know that he's kind, and I'm going to ask, I'm going to risk, because who knows what might happen? And so are you living in that place, or are you still living in that place where you're afraid, where you're afraid you have to perform for his affection and kindness? Are you still afraid that perhaps his love is conditional, that it's based on how much you obey, on how good of a day you're having? Well, if you're still living in that place, my hope and my prayer for you this morning is that you would really take to heart these words, and we've already read them, but it's verse 7, you, my friends. If you're in Jesus, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. And that, my friends, is true of you. And so I just encourage you to believe it and to experience it as well through the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these precious words. Father, thank you that that you are the judge who... Uh, looks down on us and declares us not guilty through the blood that was shed by your son. Thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus to, to live the perfect life that we could not live. You sent him to die the death that we deserved. We thank you for that, but thank you, Lord, that that's not all you did. Father, he redeemed us from the law, but he also, he brought us into fellowship with you as a, as a child. Father, thank you that because of Jesus, we really are your kids and that you're pleased with us. Lord, we don't have to to work for your affection. We don't have to perform for you to not be disappointed in us, Lord. We, because of Jesus, have his perfect righteousness. And we can just rest. We can just be free. And so, God, I just pray for my friends. Would you seal this truth in their hearts? Lord, would you cause the Holy Spirit to allow them to experience their adoption as sons and daughters of God. We ask you for that now in Jesus' name. Amen.